Welcome to Fig Tree Ministries. This podcast is the fifth in a series of 16 lessons on the seven churches from the book of Revelation. This week will be our second look at the city of Pergamum. John calls Pergamum Satan's throne. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. So why does John refer to Pergamum as Satan's throne? In this podcast, we'll look at some of the candidates that would qualify, as well as a reference that John makes to hidden manna. So there was a tradition within Judaism regarding hidden manna. When John makes this reference, we have to have an understanding what that tradition was. Now I mention again that the original lesson was conducted with slides and lots of pictures of Pergamum and everything that we're talking about. To help with your learning, you may go over to our YouTube channel and check out the corresponding video. You can find a link below in the description section. Getting the proper visual will help make the teaching more concrete. So we hope you enjoyed today's lesson on the city of Pergamum from the book of Revelation. So we're going to go back this week. Here's the issue with Pergamum. There's way too much information in this one city, so we can't do it in two weeks. We're going to take three, and part of next week, Bonnie's really going to like this, is we're going to go to a theater, and the god Dionysus will take a look at him because he's the god of the theater. So next week will be all about theater. This week, we need to go back to Asclepius a little bit, then we'll look at some stuff about the Roman power. Uh, that sat at Pergamum, and then we're going to connect some Old Testament to it. So we have to swing through Pergamum multiple times, and I think that kind of helps you because the second and third time, it's kind of like watching a movie the second or third time around. You see things the second time or the third time that you didn't see the first time, and that's always helpful to help to reinforce information. Okay, so this will be Pergamum Part 2, so let's go and... Let's go take a trip into Pergamum. Okay, so once again, uh, always good to orient ourselves in the world. Where are we showing up in the world? So this, of course, is the Mediterranean Sea. We have Egypt and uh, yeah, Egypt and Africa to the south. You have the the boot of Rome, and of course, I'm sorry, the boot of Italy and Rome being the headquarters of the Roman Empire. Athens sits right about in the middle, becomes basically the dividing line between east and west. And then you have way off to the east, Israel. And of course, God in his wisdom selected this little piece of land, a little strip of land right along the Mediterranean Sea to put his people and then to bring the good news of his reign into the world. So that's where Jesus goes to the Sea of Galilee with his disciples. He eventually makes his way down to Jerusalem. Then the gospel goes out. The good news of God's reign goes out from Jerusalem to Judea, to Samaria, to the ends of the earth. And the end of the earth, as we've noted, is often this direction. So Paul and Peter and John all head over where civilization is and to a place that we call today Turkey. So we need to know something about the context of Turkey when we get to our epistles from Paul and Peter, and then we need to know something about Turkey when we get to Revelation, and that's, of course, what we're doing. 
So if we go a little bit closer, there's Athens, the Mediterranean Sea, and Israel. The gospel goes out in this direction. And it's quite interesting. Turkey's a fairly large country. The gospel really incubates in a small area, one province called Asia Minor. And then within Asia Minor, just a little teeny area that almost all of the activity we see from the New Testament is incubating, in a sense, in this area in Asia Minor. So if we go closer here to that area, these are the seven churches that John is writing to in the book of Revelation. They're all connected by a series of valleys and, of course, connected by roads. So John, his headquarters is in Ephesus. And from Ephesus, he's pastoring the churches. And in, in Revelation 1, as John's getting his vision, it says, write to the seven churches in Asia, and then it lists them. And the order that it lists them is the order that they go on this map. So it says, in Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. So it makes sense. I like that when, when my Bible makes sense to me, when you look at it in the real world as well. So it's just the clockwise circle of those seven cities that John is pastoring. Now, we did Sardis a couple weeks in a row. Last week, we went to that northern city up there called Pergamum, and that's what we're going to go back to today. Pergamum, as I mentioned last week, if we thought of California, like California, the, probably the most influential city is Los Angeles. That would be Ephesus. But the government in California sits up in Sacramento. So Sacramento becomes an important city because the government's there. That's Pergamum. So not a whole lot there other than the seat of the Roman government, which makes it very important. So Pergamum sits on the northern side of what's called the Caicos River Valley. Unlike Sardis, not a whole lot of geography that goes into the story. But that's where it sits. So let's go closer. There is an Acropolis of Pergamum. We'll take a little bit of a tour around the Acropolis today. It sits about a thousand feet above the modern city, which today is called Bergama. No P in Arabic. So Pergamum becomes Bergama. Now, last week, we went to a place way over here where that circle is. That's the Asclepion that we visited last week. Basically, one of the best medical hospitals in the ancient world, famous. And we'll swing back through there today just to look at a, a couple items of how they gave their testimony to Asclepius. All right, so that's Pergamum. As we've been doing, and this is maybe different than what how you've read Revelation before, is we want to say, what did those first hearers hear? as somebody read a letter from Pastor John. We have to remember that their Old Testament hasn't been formalized yet, so they're using the words of the Old Testament, and then John's going to connect them with the context of the world that they live in. And this brings together a very powerful message that they hear, because Christianity blossomed in this area. So they must have listened to John, and they must have known what John was saying and understood that there's, a, at least in this case, there's a higher power than Rome. 
what I'd like you to do is turn to, in your Bible, to Revelation 2, and we'll start reading the letter to Pergamum. To the angel of the church in Pergamum, write, These are the words of him who has the sharp, double-edged sword. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne, yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to set death in your city, where Satan lives. Verse 14. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin, so that they ate food sacrificed to idols and committed sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teachings of the Nicolaitans. Repent, therefore, otherwise I will soon come to you, and I will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Verse 17. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who's victorious, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. Okay, so that's our letter. Now, what we have to do, just like last week, and today we'll do a little bit more of it, how do we connect those either to the culture that of what was there in Pergamum or to something in the Old Testament? Okay, so last week, and this is one of the main questions that scholars have, is why does John call it Satan's throne? What's he connecting that to? And I think there's a whole number of things that it could be. Last week, we went through a list of what the possibilities are. Why does John call it Satan's throne? Well, first, a center for pagan worship. I looked at my notes, 61 temples they found. So this city, by far, had significantly more temples than any other city that John's writing to. So it's a hotbed of pagan worship. That could make it Satan's throne. Second, we have the altar to Zeus. We'll look at that today. They call Zeus the Savior. Well, that's a fraud, so that could be Satan's throne. You have the Asclepius Temple. That's what we looked at last week. We'll swing back through there again today. That could be, that's clearly a fraud, but that could be why John's calling it Satan's throne. And many of the early church fathers were connecting the idea of whatever Asclepius did with the devil. So they read it that way. The seat of Roman power. We'll talk about that today. What makes that city special? And then finally, the imperial cult. Now, that's connected to the seat of Roman power, but it's lit, it's the idea that the Roman emperor is considered Lord and God. And if you don't call him that, then you're going to have to pay the price of not worshiping the Caesar. Pergamum was what they call Neochorus, the central place for the worship of Caesar Augustus. So that was a, it's a central place. You'll see another temple to some other uh, emperors in a minute. So last week we looked at that Asclepius temple. Now I left something out that we need to go back to today. Way out in that field 
is the temple to Asclepius. You can see here's the circle that that where the buildings used to stand. There's that sacred road that leads into that temple. There's some things about how they gave their testimony to Asclepius that goes right into the text. So we need to go back there for a minute and show you what's there. Let me give you, this is an overhead view. So if we just pull up Google Earth and you look at the Asclepius Temple, if you go right here into the upper right, you can see the road. That's the sacred road that we walked in on. So I'll put a line right there. That's what we walked down yet last week. and. There's a little round room there that's admissions where you stop off and you have your medical records. And if you've paid your insurance premiums, they're checking you out there. Now, we noted that there's a theater so you could watch plays and relax. And they found entertainment was good for reducing stress. We went into the treatment rooms. That's where the god Asclepius would speak to you while you're slightly high on opium and you hear the sound of his voice, the moving waters. So there's those treatment rooms. Now, last week I noted that to get to the treatment rooms, you had to walk through a tunnel. So that little circle right there in the middle, that's the opening of that tunnel that we went in. So you can see, even from above, you can see a line that kind of moves right along the ground where that tunnel moves to enter into the treatment rooms. Again, fairly remarkable. Then you have, finally, the Temple to Asclepius, because once you're healed, you're going to have to make your, pay your allegiances to Asclepius and give your testimony about his healing power. So this is, this is what we need to look at today. Let me show you a couple pictures. As we went down, there's the sacred road. At the end of that road is the Temple to Asclepius. So as you move down there... Oh, wait, let me go. let me review this again. So why is Asclepius a fraud? Why would John say this is Satan in disguise? Well, as part of his myth, remember, this is the myth that they came up with. He's born of a union between a god and a mortal woman. Well, right there, that's a fraud. But that's, how, that's what they came up with in the myth. He was resurrected from the dead and seated at, on the throne. He got put on Mount Olympus with his father. That's a fraud. He's called Savior, so Asclepius Soder. Anybody who can save you from a medical condition, you know, people, even doctors, take on a Savior complex. And then his symbol is the snake. So you, you put all those together and you say, clearly, this is a fraud. It's all, it's all deceit. And this is one of the main reasons why people think Asclepius is why John says Satan's throne. But let's go in and look, because you, now you have to decide if you're sick or your child's sick or you're spouse is sick, are you going to go into Asclepius? If you do, you're going to have to give your allegiance to him or they're not going to let you in. So this creates a, creates a problem in the first century. As you go in, this is like the main gate to go into the Asclepion. doesn't look like much today. That's why if you show you pictures of what's there, it just looks like stones, old stones. But let me show you what they found. At the entrance to every Asclepion was a sign, death may not enter here. At Pergamum, they only found death may not enter here. At other Asclepions, it would say death may not enter here, and then there would be a subset, and they would list people who they wouldn't let in. One of the main ones, pregnant women. 
because pregnancy was such a risky thing in the first century. Many pregnant women died in childbirth or shortly thereafter. And Artemis is the god of pregnant women. So that's not Asclepius's problem. So they wouldn't let pregnant women in. And of course, you could see that's an issue when you won't take care of somebody. You have the best medicine in the world, but you won't use it for the unborn or, or the mother, for that matter. So they didn't find that here, but I just wanted to show you. Death may not enter here. That's kind of the way they viewed it. Okay, we noted last week that Asclepius healed by moving water, and this is the sacred spring of Asclepius. The water comes right out of the side of those hills. It's a little bit radioactive, so somehow that radioactivity helps you. What I left out last week, this was the part, we went into that treatment room, and let's assume we got healed. So now what? What are we going to do if we've been healed? Well, we're going to have to give our testimony to Asclepius. And what I want to show you is how they did that, both at other Asclepions first, and then I'll show you how they did that here in Pergamum. So one of the main ways that you would give your testimony to Asclepius now, apparently, you must have had some money because you had to commission a sculptor and they would make some kind of model of whatever part of you was sick or injured that Asclepius healed. So in this case, apparently, the guy had a problem with his leg. Maybe it was his knee, his ankle, his foot, a calf, whatever it was, had something to do with his leg. So he commissions a sculptor. They make the, the, the body part. And then you hang it up somewhere and you say, my testimony to Asclepius is that he healed this body part. If you go into a dentist's office or a chiropractor's office, you have testimonies all over the place, right? Here's how the chiropractor helped me. We get affirmation of, of healing. Another city that had a major Asclepion was Corinth. And at Corinth, they find tons of these body parts, a hand, a, a shoulder, an eye, an ear a foot, whatever. Now, what city does Paul write and use the body metaphor? Does the hand say to the foot? Does the eye say to the mouth? Does the whatever? It's in Corinth. So in Corinth, he speaks body parts to a city that they find body parts all over the place because of the Asclepion and people giving their testimony. Just another way that Paul uses the metaphor of culture to speak to the people who live there. Okay, but let me show you Pergamum. So how did they do it at Pergamum? Well, here's what they found. There's a whole line of these there at the Asclepion, but in front of the temple to Asclepius were white stones. And on the white stone, you would put your name, you'd have your name engraved, and then whatever part of you Asclepius healed. Now, I just think about that for a minute as we've read the the letter to Pergamum a couple times, where do we find the idea of a white stone and a name? Well, in John's letter to Pergamum. So let's go there. They actually, from my, my under, what I understand too, is they find these white stones, you know, people, they need a stone for their house and they'll walk over to an ancient place and pick up a stone. So they find these all over the community there in the older houses where people have gone to reuse ancient stones. Here's what it says. This is verse 17. Whoever has ears, 
Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who's victorious, now victorious. Does that mean you're healed? You overcame your sickness? Well, I will give some of the hidden manna. Now we'll talk about that in a few minutes, God willing. I will also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. Now that is right out of that Asclepion at Pergamum. They would catch the idea of white stone and a name because that's how you gave your testimony to Asclepius. Now, the question that scholars debate is, well, what does John mean by that? What do we mean today? What does that mean today? And one idea is, clearly, if you recognize that God, the, crea- the God who created the world, through his Messiah Jesus, that's who actually does the healing. So your testimony becomes you. You become the testimony. You know what God did for you. And now you become the testimony to go out into the world, just like a living stone. When Remember when Peter says you're living stones, like a standing stone is a testimony to what the God did. Many scholars look at it as you're, you are the testimony. Only you know what God did for you. Now go tell everybody what God did. It's just a thought, I, but I wanted to show you that that idea of white stones, you've probably heard other sermons about white stones in the future. I'm not sure. Who knows what's going to happen when we get to heaven? At least, at least we know there's white stones there at Pergamum. Okay, so again, we go back to our list. Is that why Satan's throne? Well, maybe. It's certainly a good candidate. Let me show you another one. I've mentioned this, obviously, numerous times, that the seat of the Roman Empire was at Pergamum. But I want to show you a detail about what was there and that power. Pergamum had long been the capital of the kingdom of Pergamum. When Rome took over from the Adelids, that's what we did last week, the whole list of names, Eumenes and Adelis. Uh, when Rome took over, they put the headquarters of their province right there at Pergamum. So the seat of the Roman government sits in Asia. Now, the the governor, called the proconsul, in Pergamum had a specific power that was only given to him, well, not only him, but within the province of Asia. It's called Eus Gladii. Now, you might notice Gladii so if you're somebody who's really good with a gladii, you might be called a gladiator. So a gladii is a sword, and use gladii is a term that means the right of the sword. Well, the right to do what? Well, it's the right over the death penalty. Who controls the death penalty? If you're in Asia... It's the proconsul who sits in Pergamum. So if you're down in Ephesus and you want to put someone to death, you have to send the for judgment up to the proconsul in Pergamum. Kind of like here in uh, California, you know, the mayor doesn't have the power over the death penalty. 
the county supervisors don't have power over the death penalty. So who has power? If you're sitting on death row in California, who do you have to appeal to? Gavin Newsom. Gavin Newsom has the power over life and death, so to speak. He's the one who has jus gladii, the right to determine if somebody lives or dies when it comes to the death penalty. Or, I guess in our case, in the United States, you could go to President Trump, too. But let me show you. So think about that. The governor there in Pergamum has the right of the sword. Now, let's go back to the letter to Pergamum. It starts off to the angel in Pergamum right, or to the, of the church in Pergamum right. These are the words of him who has the sharp, double-edged sword. Now, right there, I hope that part of going through this this way, you can see how anti-Roman the letter of Revelation is. You're speaking directly against that Roman Empire. And, you know, it takes courage to speak out against the Roman Empire. Because it didn't always end well for those that didn't, or those who tried to. Now watch the next verse, because you have to, what's the whole topic here? Well, these are the words of him who has the sharp double-edged sword. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. Yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was what? Put to death. So the whole topic in the first two sentences here of his letter is about the death penalty. Where does John include the remark about a death penalty? In the place that the governor who sits there holds the power over life and death. And then, of course, where Satan lives. So this is clearly an anti-Roman speaking right to, because he's saying, oh, no, there's a power greater than Rome over life and death. And this, the person who I got this from, Jesus, is that power. So. Anyways, I feel like I want to yell even louder through my Zoom microphone because it just makes me like, this is what Revelation, speaking out against the, the abuse of power in a sense. Okay, let me show you one more because that the, the concept of sword is constantly being used, right? So if we go to verse 16 in, in uh, Revelation 2, you also get this idea of the sword as a weapon. Repent, therefore, otherwise I will soon come to you, and I will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. So notice, Jesus is saying, look, I've got a sword too. But my sword isn't a metal sword of destruction, although, well, it's not the metal sword of destruction like the Roman sword. The sword is the words of God spoken to you. Now, those words can feel like they're destroying, too. When somebody convicts you of your of doing something wrong, where truth is very powerful. But there's this idea that when you go to battle, you take a sword. But in, God, in God's kingdom, the sword is God's words. So we need to know our Old Testament. We need to bring God's words into battle, just like John does and Jesus did and Paul does. Now, here's the question that I'd have for you, because we need to connect this to the Old Testament. Where's John getting his references from? Well, let me just go through them. We don't have time to turn there. 
Isaiah 4. Isaiah, or I'm sorry, Isaiah 4. Isaiah 11, 4. Now, Isaiah 11, the whole thing is about the Messiah who's going to come. So this Messiah is going to come. He's going to judge with righteousness, but will righteous with righteousness he will judge the needy. With justice he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. With the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. The words coming out of this Messiah's mouth are going to be his sword, his his weapon. So that's one place in Isaiah. Let's go to another place. I put this on your sheet so you can read it when you have time. Isaiah 49.2 He made my mouth like a sharpened sword. He hid me in the shadow of his hands. Now it also goes on to say, using the metaphor of a polished arrow. But the idea that you have a sharpened sword are the words in your mouth. Now let me show you an example from Paul. Because Paul is you going to use the same metaphor, and you guys, I know you all know this one. Ephesians 6 is the full armor of God. You put on the full armor of God when you're going to battle. Verse 17 says, Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit. Well, what's the sword of the Spirit, Paul? And Paul tells us, The word of God is the sword of the Spirit. Remember, I know I keep saying this, Paul's words, Paul uses the Old Testament. This is part of my, I think, part of my mission in life. One of my passions, I'm so, whenever I read the Old Testament, I find it so compelling. It's so powerful and speaks so deeply to humanity that I just, it's like it's bursting. It's inside of me and it wants to just burst out. And part of my mission is, and I hope you guys have seen this over the past couple of years, is how important it is for us to know the Old Testament. That when those words are spoken, there is tremendous meaning and power. God speaks and the whole world's created. We, in the image of God, speak and we create reality. You can destroy with your words. You can build up with your words. But the word of God is so important. And uh, I feel like sometimes, you know, as a lot of we take our New Testament, we run around with the helmet of salvation, but we forget to bring the sword. And we love salvation. But anyways, sorry for that rant. But it's just so. It's such a passion of mine to say, let's let's get back into that Old Testament and reclaim it. OK, so that's the you have the power to speak God's words into the world. And it's like having a sword to fight a battle. It's just that, that powerful. So, we have Asclepius. We have the seed of Roman, the Roman power. Either of those will work, because clearly they're being persecuted by the Roman power. Another one, we talked about this last week, the altar to Zeus. So I wanted to show you this. Um, they call Zeus the savior, and that altar was the largest altar in the world. Wait till you see it. Now, here is, that's the Acropolis of Pergamum. Now, the sunlight and camera angle and all of that. And by the way, it just looks brown. So you can't tell what you're looking at. So let me show you a couple things. This tree over here, 
that's that tree inside the temple to Zeus or the altar to Zeus. So every time I showed you that picture of just a square on the ground with a tree in it, that's the tree sat right on the corner. So for miles and miles, you could see that altar to, to Zeus. Then you have, this is what we're going to look at next week. There's a theater built right into the, it's an amphitheater built right into the side of the hill. You'll see a picture of that at the end of the presentation. And then let me show you this building that's sitting up here. That's a temple to the emperor Trajan. And, by the way, then his son, or however they took on his son, Hadrian, who came after him. So let me show you an artist's rendering of the Acropolis. You're just looking at a picture of a whole bunch of buildings, so let's walk through some of these buildings. First of all, how impressive is it that they built that on the side of a hill? The Zeus temple, or the Zeus altar, is right there. sits right on the corner, overlooking everything. And so it's very prominently put out for the world to see. That's the Zeus altar. Then you have the Athena temple. Athena temple right at the top. Second largest library in the world. Largest library at the time was Alexandria in Egypt. Athena temple, second largest. Then you have the theater. There's the theater right in the middle of the hill. And, of course, the god to the theater is Dionysus. So the Dionysus temple is actually connected, in a way, to the theater. You have to walk under the stage to get to the Dionysus temple. You worship Dionysus through the play. We'll talk about that next week. And then, last building, that's Emperor Trajan his temple, and it's pretty remarkable, just like the Temple Mount in Jerusalem, he didn't have enough space up there, so he just built out and created a platform on the side of the hill. So pretty remarkable engineering. Okay, that is what you're seeing right there. Now you can see why the artist's rendering is better than the picture today, because you just can't see what's on that hill. There's the Zeus, there's the theater, there's Trajan. Okay, here's where the Zeus temple sits. That's where it, well, I'm sorry, it used to sit right there. It's so difficult. I wish I had a human being in that picture to show you how large that thing is. Because it's, you can't get a perspective on it. But let me show you what it looks like today. You have to travel to Germany to see it. In the Pergamum Museum in Germany, that is the altar to Zeus excavated. They started excavations in the late 1800s. An agreement between Germany and Turkey, they removed all the panels out and all of the structure that they could, took it to Pergamum and rebuilt, or I'm sorry, took it to Pergamum, took it to uh, Berlin and rebuilt that in the what's called the Pergamum Museum. Also, the Athena Temple is in the Pergamum Museum. So that altar right there, 110 feet by 110 feet, about four stories tall. You can see the size of those people standing on the stairs, how, how small they look relative to that. That sat right there. And that's pretty remarkable. You can, I, I don't know how to, it's remarkable. Let's, let's say that. Now, 
If we go back to this picture right here, you might recognize that young man right there. That's Mel. So Mel took that, or that picture was taken with Mel standing on the steps of the Pergamum Museum. So thank you, Mel, for your photograph. So that's the altar to Zeus. Okay, so is that the reason they call it Satan's throne? Well, again, that could be it. Next week, we'll look at another one. I want to show you one thing. I want to show you one thing that how we can connect the Old Testament to something here at Pergamum. Uh, again, going up against the idea of that, that Roman power there. In the letter is a reference to hidden manna. And of course, John's drawing on that from somewhere. The difficulty is, where is he getting his material? So in Revelation 2.17, he says, whoever has, well, whoever has ears to hear what the Spirit says to the churches, and then he says, to the one who's victorious, I will give some of the hidden manna. Now, what does that mean? What is he talking about, the hidden manna, and why does that have any reference to Jesus? Well, let's go take a look, because this is going to cause us to go back. Now he's moved out of the Greco-Roman culture, and he's moving into the Jewish ideas. So this comes from the book of Exodus, and in Exodus, this is where you find God giving manna as they're coming out of Egypt. He gives them manna as food. And then you get the, what seems to be a very strange sentence. So Exodus 16, 32 to 34. Moses said, this is what the Lord has commanded. Take an omer of manna and keep it for the generations to come so that they can see the bread I gave you to eat in the wilderness when I brought you out of Egypt. Take some manna, keep it for the generations to come. So what do Moses and Aaron do? Moses said to Aaron, take a jar and put an omer of manna in it. Then place it before the Lord to be kept for the generations to come. Okay, so as the Lord commanded Moses, Aaron then puts the manna with the tablets of the covenant law so that it might be preserved. So where are the tablets of the covenant law kept? Well, they're kept in the Ark of the Covenant, in the Holy of Holies, where God's protection. So apparently what happened was the you have the, the Ark of the Covenant, they put the tablets in, they also put a jar with manna in it. And that's pretty much all you hear about it. Now, clearly, if you were a child in Bible study class in, in Israel, you know, 200 B.C., and you read this in Exodus, what's your question going to be? What happened to the manna? Where did it go? And so what they did is they started to come up with ideas, explanations about the manna, because now the manna it's kind of gone in a way. We don't know where it is. So this comes from, it's not in the Bible. It comes from outside sources of the Bible. But you can see 
that they're thinking about where this mana went. So let me, I'm going to do something. Um, this is mostly for the people who have not been part of Faith Builders, because for the Faith Builders, you'll see we've done this a number of times, but I need to give you a basic timeline. So the timeline goes like this. In 586 BC, the Babylonians came and destroyed the temple in Jerusalem. The Israelites were taken into captivity in Babylon. Then you have 538 BC. That's when um, Cyrus, who we talked about at Sardis, Cyrus gave the decree that the Jews could go back and start rebuilding their temple. And then our Bible, you get some books written after this. Ezra, Nehemiah, the building, the rebuilding of the temple. You get prophets like Zechariah and Malachi. So somewhere around 450 BC, our Old Testament is done, kind of done being written. Then, of course, our New Testament shows up. 33 AD, you have Jesus. And then at least John now is writing in 90 AD. So you have the New Testament out here. And what we're concerned with is what happened during this 500-year period. That's a long period of time that there's no writings for our Bible. Well, depends on what community you're in that and your Bible. So during this 500 years, most people say they, they've heard the, the idea that it's a quiet time, meaning there's no prophetic voice, and so therefore we don't have anything in our Old Testament. But it doesn't mean nothing happened. So during this 500 years, there's tons of writing. And what they're trying to do is interpret their Old Testament. One group of writings from this 500-year period is called the Apocrypha. Now, if you're Catholic or you have a Catholic Bible, then your Apocrypha is inside your Catholic Bible. If you have a King James Version from, say, prior to, I think it was about 1890, King James used to print the Apocrypha inside their, the Bible. So this used to be, a, these books used to be regularly printed in our Bibles, and then has kind of gone away over the past hundred years or so. So the Apocrypha is a group of writings that come from these years in between, and they help us understand the history. One of the books from the Apocrypha, or actually there's a number of books, are called the Maccabees. Now the Maccabees were a group of people about 160 BC who rose up and fought against the, the Greek Empire, the uh, Seleucid Greeks, who tried to outlaw the reading of the Torah. They made circumcision illegal. And those Maccabees overthrew the Greeks, they restored the temple, and they created a holiday called Hanukkah. So all of you are familiar in some way, shape, or form of the book of Maccabees, because that's where Hanukkah comes from. And that's part of the Apocrypha. So I just want to show you what I'm going to quote from. This is where it comes from. For those of you who haven't been in the class, haven't been going along with us. So let me show you. If you go to a normal uh, Bible software, this is Bible Gateway. Um, you'll notice up here I have, it's written 2 Maccabees. Now, if you go to Bible Gateway and just type in 2 Maccabees, nothing will come up if you're just in a normal Protestant Bible. So I selected 
the common English Bible. Well, that happens to be a Catholic Bible. So if you select a Catholic Bible, type in 2 Maccabees, you'll find the book of Maccabees. But it doesn't show up if you have a regular NIV, NASB, ESV, something like that. So I just wanted to show you, you can go to your normal Bible software and find the book of Maccabees. You just have to do a couple tweaks to get there. Okay, so that's where we find this book today. So here's what the second Maccabee says. And again, we're talking about what happened to the hidden manna. That's really what we're trying to discover. So apparently there was a document. They're quoting from a document. It says the same document also, or also states that the prophet, now the prophet they're talking about is Jeremiah. In the book of Jeremiah, as the Babylonians come to destroy the temple, Jeremiah goes south to Egypt. That's in the Bible. Then something comes up. Where did the Ark of the Covenant go? Well, there's all these myths now. We don't know where it is. And this is one of them, one of the stories that comes out. The same documents state that the prophet, that's Jeremiah, commanded with a solemn divine pronouncement that the meeting tent and the chest containing the covenant should go with him. So there's a story that Jeremiah took the Ark of the Covenant covenant south to Egypt. The documents reported that he went to the mountain that Moses ascended to see the inheritance that God promised. Next, when Jeremiah arrived, so there's Jeremiah, he discovered a cave where he deposited the meeting tent, the covenant chest, which also has the manna in it, and the incense ulcer. He blocked up the opening. So now the manna is hidden. Some who had accompanied him went along to mark the way but couldn't find it again. When Jeremiah found out, he rebuked them and said, now here's where it starts to come into our what we need to know about Jesus. The place will remain unknown until gather, God gathers the people together again and shows mercy. Now who's going to be the leader when God gathers his people together? The Messiah. So when the Messiah comes, so the idea was this, Jeremiah took the ark of the covenant and the hidden and the manna and hid it away. Well when's the, when's the manna going to come back? The man is going to come back when the Messiah shows up. So it's going to make it's going to be made known again. Verse 8, the the Lord will disclose these things. The Lord's glory will appear with the cloud as they were revealed in the time of Moses when Solomon prayed that the place might be made holy. Okay. I just want to show you that there's an idea of hidden manna that's been floating around. What's the story? When the Messiah shows up, the hidden manna is going to come out. Now, if we go back to Revelation, if John says to the one who's victorious, speaking of Jesus, I will give some of the hidden manna, then what does that tell you about Jesus? That he's the Messiah who's come. Because he's now gotten the hidden, he's found the hidden manna, he went back to wherever it was hidden, pulled it out. So, that's a long explanation, but we have to know something about the way that they interpret their Bible and the stories that they come up with that tell us this idea of the hidden manna being somewhere. There's about four different documents, separate documents, that talk about the manna 
that will come back during the, the age of the Messiah. So John is speaking about something that they know of. But what he does do is, this is a sentence that tells you Jesus is the Messiah. Now, how can we connect that, Jesus Messiah, to the Roman Empire that sits at that place? Well, one thing the Messiah is going to do is he becomes the judge of the world. Just like Isaiah says, his justice will be right. So if the Messiah is the judge of the world, what city do you go to? to judge. Well, in Asia, you go to Pergamum. So again, in a very strange way, it's all working. It's They're all wrapped up together to say, Jesus is Messiah. That judge in Pergamum is not it. There's one greater than him that's going to come. Okay. Hopefully that made some sense because that sentence right there, for a long time, I would read that and think, the heck are they talking about hidden manna? I don't even know where that came from or where they would go with that. But you have to do a little bit of digging into, obviously, the Apocrypha and some other some other texts. Okay, that's the hidden manna. So we've still got a couple candidates. One, one answer might be D, all of the above. Next week, what we're going to do is we're going to look at one more god, actually, to talk about the pagan worship. And then we'll, we'll talk about the emperor cult. But the God we're going to look at is the God of the theater. So there's that amphitheater in Pergamum. You can see there's a, well, here, let me, here's the Zeus altar. You've seen that tree a couple times. Here's the theater. Sits, it's very steep. Right along that hill. And then the temple to Dionysus is right down below that word Dionysus. And you can see there's a pathway called the Sacred Road. That Sacred Road takes you right underneath the stage of the theater and to the Temple of Dionysus because he's the god of the theater. So next week we'll talk Dionysus Theater. Okay, one last thing. There's a practice with Dionysus, a practice of Dionysus worship, that John's going to connect in the letter to Balaam and Balak. He uses Balaam and Balak, who taught the Israelites to commit sexual immorality and eat meat sacrificed to idols. That's right out of the book of Numbers. So this week, I'm going to send you, I'm going to send you some verses from the book of Numbers, because when we start talking Balaam and Balak, I don't want to just throw names at you or ideas. Please read Balaam and Balak stories. Again, I'll send that in the email. That'll just help you connect what John is doing because it's a strange story out of the book of Numbers. Let's keep going. So that was Pergamum, part two. Thanks for joining us under the fig tree for today's lesson. If you like this video, be sure to hit the like button below. And make sure you subscribe to our YouTube channel and hit that bell to be notified every time I upload a new lesson. You can also check out more teachings here at our YouTube channel or at figtreeteaching.com and enjoy learning about the sweetness of God's words.